0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music and more. What does it
1: taste like? It's pretty gross. Like it's not, it doesn't have a bad taste. It's just really, really bitter. Like you can try some if you want.
2: 9am on a Friday feels like a weird time to be at a bar. It feels like I've made bad life choices. Don't get me wrong though, it is a lovely bar.
1: So it's a cocktail bar, very old world sort of feel.
2: And Charlie, are you listening to here? He's a lovely bartender.
1: My name's Charles Casbin, and I am a bartender. <laughs>
2: you look like you really had to think about it for a second? What, what am I?
1: Yeah, um, yeah I'm a bartender. Um, I work at Moyes Juniper Lounge. Um, we've been open six years, and we're an old-world cocktail bar with a focus on gin
2: classics. What isn't as lovely is the fistful of wood in my hand. So it looks like shredded up cinnamon bark. Like it's sort of dry and brown with a bit of a reddy tinge. I'm gonna give it a go. Alright, here we go. Do you know what it tastes like? It tastes like bark. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Does it, is the bitterness coming
2: through you? Sure, yeah, it's awful.
1: Yeah, and then
2: once you sort of finish, it'll just... <laughs> really bad. Um, you... oh, yeah, good, there's a bin. <laughs> <laughs> the tune won't help. This bark has changed the course of history. It's actually worse than I was expecting. I should probably mention that the mysterious reddish wood that I just shoved down my gullet, uh, you're not meant to eat it that way. Instead, you're meant to turn it into a liquid.
1: You <laughs> actually got me at a time, I'm bottling our tonic syrup.
2: When you do it becomes something that you may have heard of
1: tonic always kind of seems to people to be a lot more complicated because they don't intuitively understand what it is like what the flavors are so like oh tonic Um, it sounds fancy yeah and it's so specific it's like gin and tonic it sounds like it's supposed to be a medicine but i'm getting drunk with it so (laughs) like all my favorite yeah it doesn't it doesn't really add up these days to a lot of people. But the truth is it's just a, it's basically sugar syrup with bark, which has various different pronunciations depending on which branch of Latin
2: language you might subscribe to. All of them. I subscribe to all of them. Yeah, the pronunciation is a bit of a thing.
1: So it can be bark, kinkonobark, bark. The C-H and the C, depending on which country you're in and which vowel it follows, all sort of change. I tend to call it bark. And, and that's what we shall go with for now.
3: <laughs> <Sure>.
1: <laughs> a bark of a tree native to Peru. Peru.
3: It's not found anywhere else on Earth.
4: It's something that I think most Peruvians have never seen and will never see.
2: So, how does this bark from Peru end up in your gin and tonic?
3: This is incredible story of botanical adventure, of exploration...
2: Well, it happens with a dash of malaria.
3: White people will die. They hoped to present it as a humanitarian effort.
2: A sweep of competing empires.
0: That's where I think the theft is.
2: The Dutch and the
3: English discovered that they could just steal
1: it. A daring heist.
0: The British justified these expeditions in the name of
2: science.
1: Forced their soldiers to drink it and continue their conquering ways.
2: And just a hint of something much worse.
3: As many people saw it, an act of colonial piracy.
2: My name is Mark Fennell, and this is stuff the British stole.
5: Cinchona is a tree that only few Peruvians, including myself, know how it looks like or where it grows. It is an unknown tree. To find it in its natural ecosystem, we have to travel long distance.
2: If you look at the Peruvian flag, it has this hidden detail that, at least according to these two Peruvians, well, according to them, most other Peruvians don't know this surreptitious gem of history is on their flag.
4: And like Malu and I, we discovered things about this national emblem that we hadn't even thought about.
2: They hadn't until both of these two started working together on a collaboration called The Fever Tree Project.
4: Hi, uh, my name is Irene Arce. I'm a researcher. Uh, My name is uh, Maluca Bellos. I am
5: a Peruvian uh, visual artist.
2: You see, on that flag, sandwiched between thick red and white bands, is a shield. And the top right-hand corner of that shield appears to be the generic tree logo. you see, it's not a generic tree. It's a very special, very hard-to-find tree. It grows
4: in a specific area, cloud forest, in an area between the Andes and the Amazon.
2: Yes, between the Amazon and the Andes Mountains, high above sea level, among the clouds. That is where that infamous cinchona tree, with its delicious bark and wild history, this is where it grows.
4: It's very difficult to, like, get to, to see the cinchona tree. You need to travel, like, extensively for many hours. It's, like, like, high mountains, like, very steep, you know, like, through dirt roads.
2: This area is largely cut off from the rest of Peruvian life. The Indigenous people here, they speak their own dialect, they have their own ways of doing things. And yet the tree from here is somehow considered nationally important enough to go on the flag...
4: What is uh, strange about this tree is, like, we see it, like, at school, you know, the textbooks and so forth, but, like, it's almost mythological. It's something that I, I think most Peruvians have never seen and will never see. It's an imagined tree. And we didn't know about the history
2: of this tree. And that history stretches through the centuries and right around the globe. But according to these two and many, many other Peruvians... This is the story of crime.
4: Yeah, both of us uh, would consider it a theft because they were taking illegally. Uh, well, no, not illegally, unethically, yeah. They took it. It, it was a theft. British uh, got away with many things they couldn't have done
2: today. So how exactly do you steal a plant? And why would you steal a plant? I'll tell you this for nothing. It actually has nothing to do with gin and tonics. This is about a brutal disease and soldiers at war and a stunning garden almost 10,000 miles away.
0: When you're bitten by an Anopheles mosquito, you will start to shiver, you'll have high temperatures, you'll have hallucinations. These parasites will live in your body. You will be left with uh, sometimes a permanent infection for years after you first get bitten. I am Kavita Philip and I am at UBC the University of British Columbia in Vancouver.
2: For generations of European colonists and soldiers as they ventured out around the world into Asia and India and beyond one of the biggest fears was a disease malaria. You could
0: not travel in uh, the tropical regions if you were the British military if you were anybody really without succumbing to malaria when military folks, mostly, you know, working-class British people who were conscripted into the military or told to work for empire, they came up against this almost invisible enemy.
2: And Kavita has seen the impacts of malaria up close. You said your, your dad had had it five times. What was that like to, to witness him going through that?
0: Um, It's a strange disease because people can't really talk much. They're sort of, they're shivering... Uh, They're under blankets, but it would severely compromise your ability to function. And certainly for the British Empire, a non-functioning military was out of the question.
2: And that was a very real threat facing the global British Empire, which, remember, at its peak, dominated a quarter of the world's population and land.
0: The mosquito almost brings the British Empire to its knees. The British could not travel to the tropics without dying in the millions.
2: And it's a particularly big problem for them in India.
0: When Queen Victoria becomes Empress of India, as they say, they need to put down the revolt in India, the 1857 First War of Independence, that nationalists call it.
2: It had a few different names, but it was a huge, violent uprising in India. And for the British, it was a key turning point
0: the revolt showed the British that they needed more troops. If they were going to send more troops to the tropics, they needed something, some prophylactic, some preventative, to stop the troops from dying of malaria. Uh, malaria was terrifying to them, I mean, you, you would sort of get um, hallucinations, the fever could return several times, and so malaria wasn't just a one-off thing. Uh, troops could, could literally spend their lives um, suffering from it. So quinine was absolutely key to the British in order to have troops on the ground, not just in India, but in Africa, and different parts of the tropics.
2: Yes, quinine. Quinine is a medicine that is derived from a certain bark that I tried earlier with the bartender Charlie.
1: Which was traditionally found to have properties that would help treat malaria. And the native Peruvians were using this for centuries.
2: And accordingly was only really available in some hard-to-reach corners of a handful of South American countries.
0: So Peru, Bolivia and Ecuador know this bark, which is the bark of the Chinchona tree, is incredibly valuable. And so they want to protect their comparative advantage in quinine, in the bark, in the alkaloid that comes from the tree. Uh, And at the same time, they know by the 1830s, 40s and 50s that the British and Dutch really want this.
2: Yes, the Dutch and the British, these global empires determined to protect their soldiers from this invisible enemy of malaria. They want that bark. And Peru, Bolivia and Ecuador, they can see those empires are coming for them.
0: Where the British Empire, they have an ace in the hole, and that is Kew Gardens.
2: Today, Kew Gardens, nestled along the Thames... It is one of the UK's most loved tourist attractions.
0: So Kew looks like a gorgeous garden, and it is. It's cultivated. The gardeners are kind of showing off what they can do.
2: There are perfectly manicured lawns everywhere you look and vibrant pops of colour with plants from the four corners of the globe. But you see, none of that happened by accident.
0: If you walk around Kew Gardens today, you'll see um, several glass and... um, metal sort of pavilions. And they're sort of like massive greenhouses. And they represent continents. So, for example, the palm house represents tropical plants. You know, you'll also see a temperate house. But in each of these sort of pavilions, the palm house, the temperate house, we see plants that were native to or thrive in certain continents, if you will, that the British saw as strategic to their future. And this was going to propel the British Empire into heights of scientific control that we're still studying today.
2: And the British government weaponized Kew Gardens in this fight.
0: So Kew Gardens helped to collect plants from the far reaches, not only of the British Empire, but of other. Uh, zones, climates, and uh, nations. So uh, Bolivia, Peru, and Ecuador were, were recently independent. They won their independence from the Spanish in the 1820s. However, the British wanted quinine, but seeds are the key to imperial botany.
2: And to get those seeds is a wild story of a race between spies and pirates...
3: My name is Mark Honigsbaum. I'm a medical historian and I'm a lecturer at City University of London. So how is it
2: that you came to writing about quinine, quinine? There is a debate over how to pronounce it, I've realised as I've been making this, uh, in the first place. Where did that all kind of start for you? Uh,
3: Well, it's actually quite an extraordinary story. So for the first 20-25 years of my my career i was uh i was a journalist i found myself in zurich i was doing an investigation on a robbery Uh, and after i'd uh done an interview with the zurich police and various shady lawyer types (laughs) i went to look (laughs) I, i went to look for a restaurant where i could eat and write up my notes so mark goes and finds himself a pizza place within about five minutes of sitting down, it got quite busy and they said, excuse me, said, do you mind, if you, if, would you be happy to share this table? So I said, fine, why not? And the person who sat down, um, didn't know him from Adam, so just to make conversation, I said, hi, um, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a Swiss botanist. And I said, well, that's interesting. And I thought, what question can I ask him? So I said, what is the most interesting plant in the history of botany? And that's when he <laughs> launched into the, what I now know to be the extraordinary story of the cinchona plant. By the 1860s, Britain has an expanding empire in India. The French are in North Africa, uh, and, you know, the Dutch are in South Indonesia, Java. And they all realise that they need to obtain supplies of quinine. It was the first specific drug for any disease.
2: It's hard to quantify, but the estimates of the impact of malaria are horrific.
3: Two million people annually were dying of malaria in India. 25 million were being sickened annually.
2: With multiple superpowers desperate for quinine, the resources growing already naturally in South America were under enormous amounts of pressure
3: the forests where the trees grew were rapidly being cut down and stripped trees and the stands were dying. They weren't being replenished. This caused legitimate concern that the world might run out and therefore uh, efforts were made to send botanical collectors to South America with the aim of raising plantations in the colonial possessions of European countries. So in Britain, the plan was to plant in what's now known as Sri Lanka. The Dutch plan was Java. So what happened was there, there was a race, essentially. Most of these explorations uh, ran into difficulties quite quickly because there are civil wars raging throughout. So borders are closed or there are there are militias fighting each other. So it's very difficult to even uh, cross the border, let alone venture deep into these forests. The republics are aware that there are Europeans trying to steal their produce.
0: Following the story is literally like following a spy story.
1: The Peruvian government passed a law making it illegal for anyone to take seedlings or or seeds out of the country.
0: They are evading the Bolivian, Peruvian, Ecuadorian governments. They're going deep into the mountains uh, with indigenous guides.
3: So the Dutch are out on the blocks, the French send people, but it's really the British, of course, who, who do it best. Yes,
2: the British had a very enthusiastic volunteer to lead this mission.
3: Called Sir Clements Markham. Sir Clements Markham is best known as the father of polar exploration because he sponsored expeditions to the Antarctic, but he was also a historian of South America. So he knew South America very well, at least on paper, and he visited a few times. And that was his pitch for why he should be in charge. I, because, you know, I've travelled in South America and I know a lot about the Inca and uh, uh, and the history of this area, is even though I'm not a botanist and I have no knowledge at all of botany, basically, Clemens Markham was desperate to get from out behind a desk in Westminster where he was probably bored out of his head and he wanted the glory you know as a member of the real he became president of the real royal geographical society Mm. you know
2: looks good in a fedora
3: (laughs) yeah you know he he looks good posing on, on a precipice looking out across the amazon
0: and he's a master of rhetoric he talks about how all of this exploring it's not for our benefit. We plant collectors, we do it not even just for our country or for love of empire, but we do it for the people.
3: So he decided to lead uh, an expedition in person to Peru. So, the British have got their team for who's going to go in
2: to South America and collect these seeds. And of course, at the same time, we know the French and the Dutch are hot on their heels. But here's a twist.
3: The most important person of all though in this story, as it turned out, was someone who was not an employee of the British government, wasn't even on their radar. He was a British-born trader. His name was Charles Ledger. He had gone to South America to seek his fortune, so he had his eye on getting cinchona bark and seeds and setting himself up as a trader in Bolivia.
2: So the British alone have multiple different expeditions going, some more official than others.
3: In Bolivia, in Peru, in Ecuador, and also there's another expedition to Colombia. Markham, he goes into uh, the Peruvian Amazon, he comes out with seeds of particular variety. The Peruvians, once the authorities heard about it, they sent people to sort of put arsenic in the earth where the plants were, or they drilled holes in these portable greenhouses so that air would get in and they'd get contaminated with fungus and other stuff in an attempt to sabotage the whole expedition. So he negotiated all that. He wants to send it directly to India because that's where it's going to end up and that's where the environmental conditions are perfect for grazing this tree. And instead, they send it back to London to Kew Gardens, first of all. And then they send it from England to India via Egypt and the Suez Canal. Unfortunately, in crossing the Suez Canal in the heat of summer, all the plants get fried. No viable viable plants reach India. Which,
2: for Markham, sucks. But at least one of the other official expeditions also succeeded. But when it came to planting those trees, they realised they had a certain variety
3: that did have quinine in it. But not in very high amounts.
0: Some bark is very high in the alkaloid you need to produce quinine, and some bark is very low.
3: The levels of quinine were so low that it wasn't really viable commercially.
2: But then you get our mate Ledger.
3: We have to return now to Charles Ledger. So Charles Ledger...
2: He's a lot more common. He was born in the East End
3: doesn't have the high contacts with the British government that Markham does. He writes to people in London and asks them, you know, I've heard that, you know, the British are after this. Can you tell them that I'm here? I mean, the advantage Ledger had was that he'd spent many years in Bolivia, right, as a tradesman. He'd seen all the different varieties of the cinchona tree. More importantly, he had befriended a horticulturalist called Manuel Incra Mamani. Mamani was indigenous to the area. All his life he'd spent going into the forest. Mamani knew where the trees grew. Ledger says, can you get me these seeds? Offers him some money. The money isn't nearly enough to recompense him for the danger or cost. Nevertheless, Mamani seems to share in the belief of of Mark and other people that this is important for the world and that there's a real risk that, that, that this tree might be lost. He seems to share in that enthusiasm for that it's important to get this tree out of South America and make it available to everyone. Uh, So he takes great risks himself. He travels to the region. Mamani eventually finds the elusive, legendary red bark tree of Bolivia. But it's in a really inaccessible part of the Bolivian Amazon. He first arrives there in 1862. But it's the wrong time of year. It's the winter. So he has to to wait another season. And then he has to wait a second season. He has to wait three years and until 1865 until the trees flower and produce seeds and he can take cuttings. He then walks 1,600 kilometres back from the Amazon across the Andes to where uh, Ledger is waiting for him. He does that on foot. And then the irony of ironies is that Ledger tries to find a channel to let the British know that he's got what they've been looking for. You know, they've been sending collections all over the Andes. He's now got the most valuable seeds. But nobody knows his name in England.
0: And Ledger gives them to his brother. His brother in London is shopping these seeds around. The seeds and the saplings that come from the indigenous people of the Andes.
3: Uh, And he sends his brother to Kew Gardens with a packet of the seeds and he gets turned away they say we've already got seeds we don't need your seeds
0: we've got our own explorers and so we're not buying any seeds that are knocking around the london markets
3: the english
1: rejected it or something anyway the english passed up some sweet deal
3: and long story short ledger ends up having to sell those seeds cheaply to the dutch britain's rivals and the dutch the Dutch then plant those seeds um, in in Java and they end up producing the most commercially lucrative strain of cinchona, which by World War One is supplying all the world's needs for quinine.
2: For Malou and Irena, who you met earlier, the Peruvians, yeah, there's not a lot of sympathy to the British here.
4: At the end, like, the Dutch had the monopoly of the Cinchona trade. They controlled 90% of all, like, production and exports, and the British were, like, a minority. The British uh, got away with many things they couldn't have done today.
2: The Dutch would eventually name their inherited species Cinchona legeriana, after Charles Ledger. But Mamani... His faithful guide, who did so much, would get no such recognition. He wouldn't get a plant named after him like Ledger, nor would he be knighted like Markham later was for his contributions to the empire. Instead, Mamani was severely beaten by Bolivian police and died of his injuries years later during another seed-collecting trip orchestrated by Ledger. And it's stories like this that so often get lost in the long view of history.
3: It's definitely a theft. There's no doubt it was theft and that the tree was lucrative. But it is also true that this was a humanitarian endeavour. You could argue that it was self-serving. But I do believe that many of the plant collectors were motivated by their concern. There was a very real risk. The most valuable strains of the tree could be harvested to extinction and that therefore humankind and i stress humankind mm. would lose you know would be uh, bereft would be denied this botanical substance to you know this this mm. stopped suffering and it stopped death but of course it was done in such a way that no benefits accrued to those whose property was being stolen
2: the irony is that initial fear that the tree might be harvested to extinction, thanks to what we understand from modern genetics, it turns out that fear was well-founded.
5: So the first time I saw a cinchona tree in the wild, it was um, in a trip. We had to climb a very steep mountain, and when I was reaching the peak of the mountain ridge, I heard my colleague... And he was uh, shouting, hey, Natalie, this is your cinchona. Come, come and sit. Wow, and then next thing I know, I was just completely mesmerized and I was contemplating this tree for quite some time, which might be five minutes or one hour. (laughs) I was very overwhelmed. So, hi, I'm Natalie Ayasi Canales. I am original from the Peruvian Amazon. I am a geneticist.
2: And part of Natalie Cañales' research is the theory that potentially, thanks to all of the over-harvesting, the very DNA of the existing cinchona trees has changed.
5: 200 years ago, the super high content uh, trees were over-harvested. It could mean that the trees started producing less and less quinine they will survive in the wild more than the ones that don't because the ones that have higher will get over harvested. And it's quite possible that alkaloid levels of the current trees are lower than we could find 200 years ago in natural forests. Uh, It it doesn't make me feel too good about it. Um, It makes me a bit uh, bit angry, maybe. (laughs) I think it's important to remind ourselves what this tree meant 200 years ago, what's its meaning now, And, uh, and the rich history it has.
2: I suppose for most people, the meaning of it now is, well, it's going back to that drink. It's gin and tonic.
1: The Peruvians tried to guard it, the English tried to steal it, the Dutch finally did, and the English ended up basically making a syrup with it, mixed with rations for their soldiers. So the soldiers used to all get a daily ration of gin and that kept them happy, happy and docile. (laughs) And, you know, obviously, if you mutiny, the gin runs out. So you don't. (laughs) And so it became commonplace for the English in subcontinental Asia to have gin with this tonic syrup, which just became gin and tonic. And so the word tonic now is mostly associated with the tonic beverage. But really, tonic just referred to the fact that it was, you know, some sort of medicinal treatment.
2: When you see somebody pour a gin and tonic, when you walk past a a bottle of tonic in a grocery store, what goes through your mind?
0: (laughs) Great question. Yeah, tonic to me is a result of the global Smuggling empire, while many Indians will sort of drink it as an almost nationalist drink, to me represents an imperial crossroads. If not for quinine, we might have had a different kind of tropical world.
2: Stuff the British Stole is produced by Eunice Kim, Leah Simone Bowen and Zoe Ferguson. It was written, edited and created by me, I'm Mark Fennell. The sound design and engineering is by Martin Peralta. The executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak for CBC Podcasts and Ruthus Sleep for ABCRN. Very special thank you to Irasema Vega, Maxim Holland, Matthias Wolfson and Daniel Pereira. Stuff the British Doll is a production of ABCRN in partnership with CBC Podcasts.